0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Radio Estero's Episode 81, ARIA Part 4. Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere and with me, as always, is Yoke Boy.
1: Hi there and thanks for joining us for this final instalment in our series covering Arya Stark. In this episode, we'll pick up with Arya's final two chapters of A Storm of Swords as she and Sandor Clegane arrive at a crossroads and their travels together come to an end.
0: Then we'll head to Bravos to explore what was going on during her five chapters that are set there, three from A Feast for Crows and two from A Dance with Dragons. Was Arya really giving up her Stark identity once and for all, or was she just burying it so deep that not even her highly attuned mentors at the House of Black and White could find it?
1: And along the way, we'll point out some perhaps surprising parallels with Arya and her siblings, Bran and Sansa, and a major intersection with Jon Snow's storyline, and we'll dig into the evolution of Arya's skin-changing abilities. George has said that Arya might be his favourite female character, and as this series has shown, her chapters are chock-full of important and fascinating details and themes.
0: And one heads up for you, in case you're avoiding them, there will be one light spoiler for the Mercy chapter at the very end of the final segment. And now, before we start the episode, we want to take a moment, as always, to thank our patrons. Radio Estros is supported by patrons, and we want to thank you all, including our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Alex, Ekka in the Company of the Cats. Crispy, The Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Multude, John Wargarian, and Empty Walls, first of his name, as well as B-Word and Mr. J, The Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jib-Jab Hot Dog Shop, House Motto, We Forge the Chains We Wear in Life.
1: And if you want to support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash for as little as $3 per episode, which works out to $24 a year. You could have early ad-free access to all our episodes, plus access to patron-exclusive content and more. Thanks to all patrons, we really couldn't do this without you. And now, it's time to get started with Aya, part four. She could feel the
0: hole inside her every morning when she woke. It wasn't hunger, though sometimes there was that, too. It was a hollow place, an emptiness where her heart had been, where her brothers had lived, and her parents. Her head hurt, too. Not as bad as it had at first, but still pretty bad. Arya was used to that, though, and at least the lump was going down. But the hole inside her stayed the same. The hole will never feel any
1: better, she told herself when she went to sleep. In the days following her uncle's wedding at the Twins, Aya was as hopeless as she'd ever been. If A Clash of Kings had been about her hopes that someone would find her and help her get home, and her earlier chapters of A Storm of Swords had been about realising that wasn't going to happen, she had at least always held the hope that she'd be returned to Rob even if it was just for the ransom, and she feared what her surviving family would think of her after all she had seen and done in the months of their separation. Now she had to face the fact that her brother Rob had joined their father and, as she believed, Bran and Rickon in death, while her best hope for a mother was that she was now a prisoner at the twins. In any case, neither Rob nor Catelyn were any longer in a position to help her.
0: Aria 12, her first post-Red Wedding chapter, begins by describing her apathy. Uninterested in challenging Sandor as she had once done almost daily, she desired only to sleep. In fact, the actions and emotions attributed to her at this time are hallmarks of a deep depression of the sort that could be brought on by a catastrophic loss. Escapism, another sign of depression, took over, and it says if the hound would only have left her alone, she would have slept all day and all night, and dreamed. That was the best part, the dreaming.
1: The dreams, of course, were wolf dreams, and in those dreams she felt powerful, a feeling that had long been denied her in life. As a wolf, she was without fear, and had food to eat and fur to keep her warm, things that eluded her as a girl. And she had a family—brothers and sisters, many and more of them fierce and terrible—and hers, they would never leave her. Some months earlier, Jojen Reed had warned her brother Bran of the dangers to his self of spending too much time inside his wolf, saying, "Remember yourself, or the wolf will consume you." When you join, it is not enough to run and hunt and howl in summer's skin. Aya didn't have a mentor such as Jojen, but she did have Sandor. Unaware of the basic tenets of skin-changing, Sandor simply kicked Aya awake every morning, forcing her to leave her wolf-dreaming behind and keep going, quote, whether she wanted to or not.
0: As to where they were going, at first there didn't appear to be a plan. The pair wandered found a stray horse for Arya to ride, and generally avoided the fray soldiers who were scouring the region, hunting for stray northmen, as Sandor told her. For his part, Sandor Clegane was full of rage, and the two often didn't speak for long periods of time, nor did he tie her up at night or watch her as closely as he once had. When Arya asked where they were going, his vague reply was, away, to which he added, that's all you need to know, you're not worth spit to me now, and I don't want to hear your whining. I should have let you run into that bloody castle.
1: Aya agreed with him, thinking of her mother, it says, which, as we'll see, indicates that the conversation took place within the first few days after the wedding. And during those days spent avoiding soldiers and towns and people in general, they found a wounded man sheltering near a fallen tree. He was an archer in the service of Sir Mark Piper of Pink Maiden, and he had been at the wedding. He told them of how one of Roos Bolton's men had joked with him and drunk with him, toasting their lords, and then, with a blow from a mace that shattered his shoulder and left side, the archer said, He killed me. By the time Aya and Sandor found him, his wound was swollen and stinking, and he was gripped by fever. He asked for wine, but there was only water, which Sandor offered along with the gift of mercy.
0: The archer recognized the hound, as men had done at the twins, and, after a moment, he agreed to the mercy. In a callback to the square at Stony Sept, Arya brought the man water, and, as Angai had done for the northmen in their cages, Sandor delivered the mercy. It says, The hound eased his dagger into the man's chest almost tenderly, the weight of his body driving the point through his surcoat, ringmail, and the quilting beneath, As he slid the blade back out and wiped it on the dead man, he looked at Arya. That's where the heart is, girl. That's how you kill a man. No stranger to death herself, Arya thought. That's one way.
1: As we discussed in the previous instalment of this series, the theme of mercy becomes increasingly important in Arya's arc, and her final two chapters in A Storm of Swords are the centrepiece of that arc so far. The Gift of Mercy, a swift death, is closely related to the concept of northern justice, as we saw at Stony Sept, and is also something that links Sandor Clegane closely to Arya Stark, from Stony Sept, where he briefly occupied one of the cages that she had found those Northmen in, to this moment with the Piper Archer, and on to their final scene together in the next chapter.
0: Arya notices around this time that although Sandor isn't putting any effort into preventing her from running off, and she now possesses a horse which would make it easier for her to do so, she lacks the desire to escape that only days before had burned in her. Her depression focused on the loss of her family, but didn't end there. She had lost her temporary pack as well. Gendry and Hot Pie had both gone, and in her view, the Brotherhood had wanted her for exactly the same reasons that Sandor did. And since he had made it clear that she was worthless to him now, presumably, she'd also be worthless to them. But then Sandor struck on the idea of seeking out Liza Aaron in the Vale. You have an aunt in the Erie. Might be she'll want to ransom your scrawny hours to so the gods know why. Once we find the high road, we can follow it all the way to the Bloody Gate.
1: Aya was fairly sure Liza wouldn't know her any better than her great-uncle Brindan Tollywood. She wanted her mother and was still unable to fully accept that Catlin was actually dead. Deciding that her mother must be a prisoner in Walder Frey's dungeon, she announced, not for the first time, that they should go back to help her. When Sandor refused, she accused him of cowardice, though he was simply being pragmatic. There's no way in Seven Hells I'm going to pluck her out of his castle all by my bloody self, he said. The high road was his final answer and I fell asleep that night with her head full of thoughts of Catelyn and wild plans to kill Sandor in his sleep and return to the twins on her own to rescue her mother. It says when she closed her eyes she saw her mother's face against the back of her eyelids. She's so close I could almost smell her.
0: And then she has her most vivid wolf dream since the night she escaped Harrenhal and hunted down her pursuers inside Nymeria. In the wolf's skin, Arya could actually smell her mother, and the scent led her to a riverbank where her packmates were feeding on dead men whose bodies, quote, clogged the shallows. But unlike Bran in A Dance with Dragons, when he found himself faced with human meat while in Summer's Skin, it says Nymeria knew she could not eat. Since we've seen her kill men before, it's not clear if that was an abiding taboo for her, or if perhaps she could sense that those men were, once, part of her extended pack. Instead, she continued to follow the scent that had brought her here, until she saw her quarry, something pale and white in the water, and moving with the current of the deepest part of the river. And so she went into the river after it. Here's the passage. she splashed noisily through the shallows and threw herself into the deeper water her legs churning the current was strong but she was stronger she swam following her nose the river smells were rich and wet but those were not the smells that pulled her she paddled after the sharp red whisper of cold blood the sweet cloying stench of death she chased them as she had often chased a red deer through the trees and in the end she ran them down and her jaw closed around a pale white arm. She shook it to make it move, but there was only death and blood in her mouth. By now she was tiring, and it was all she could do to pull the body back to shore. As she dragged it up the bank, one of her little brothers came prowling, his tongue lolling from his mouth. She had to snarl to drive him off, or else he would have fed. Only then did she stop to shake the water from her fur. The white thing lay face down in the mud, her dead flesh wrinkled and pale, cold blood trickling from her throat. Rise, she thought, rise and eat and run with us.
1: The white thing is, of course, the corpse of Catelyn Stark tossed naked into the river in what Tyrion Lannister thinks is a savage mockery of House Tully's funeral customs. But where, in King's Landing, Tyrion tried to protect Sansa from the brutal reality of what had happened to her mother and brother, Aya had no such buffer. Rather, Nymeria's proximity to the scene led to Aya seeing exactly what had become of Catelyn. It also led to the on-page realisation of something that had passed as an offhand comment between Arya and Jon back at Winterfell in A Game of Thrones.
0: Yeah, in her first point of view chapter, the siblings were watching Joffrey and Rob in the training yard, and Arya had complained about things that weren't fair: John being barred from taking part because he was a bastard, and she herself being barred because of her sex, even if she did feel she was better than either Bran or Tommen, and John not being allowed to bear his family arms. John pointed out to his little sister that Joffrey's arms combined his father's and mother's equally and wondered at Lannister pride that led to such an unorthodox combination. He had then teasingly suggested to Arya that she could do the same, wed Tully to Stark in your arms. Her reply came with a laugh, a wolf with a fish in its mouth? Now, more than two books later, we see the care with which George has laid out his story, as the wolf with the fish in its mouth arrives on page in a wholly unexpected and tragic way.
1: Aya's desperate and poignant dream wish for her mother to rise and eat and run with us was, unbeknownst to her, also destined to be at least partly fulfilled in a most unexpected way. In the wolf dream, Nymeria becomes aware of men on horseback riding in her direction, quote, men on horses with flapping black and yellow and pink wings and long shiny claws in hand. Nymeria and her brothers ran from the men, acknowledging the way of the wild, and Aya's POV on the situation ends. For her, the dream brought final and irrefutable proof that her mother was dead, as were her dreams of convincing Sandor to return to the twins with her to stage a rescue. When, the next morning, Sandor broached the subject with her, she cut him short. It says, It doesn't matter. Aya said in a dull voice. I know she's dead. I saw her in a dream. The hound looked at her a long time, then nodded. No more was said of it. They rode on toward the mountains.
0: What Arya doesn't know is that the men on horseback she saw were, in fact, Beric, Lem, and Thoros. In A Feast for Crows, Thoros of Mir will tell Brienne of Tarth about that morning. When we found Lady Catelyn by the river, she was three days dead, Harwin begged me to give her the kiss of life, but it had been too long. I would not do it, so Lord Berwick put his lips to hers instead, and the flame of life passed from him to her. And she rose. May the Lord of Light protect us. She rose. And that moment represented the fulfillment of something the ghost of Highheart had said in Arya's hearing when describing the dreams sent to her by the old gods on the first occasion— they visited Highheart. I dreamt of a roaring river and a woman that was a fish. Dead she drifted, with red tears on her cheeks, but when her eyes did open, oh, I woke from terror.
1: When she was riding with the BWB, Aya had asked Thoros after the battle at the Burning Sep tree if he could resurrect her father, saying, Could you bring back a man without a head? Just the once, not six times. Could you? In that same conversation, Beric had detailed the number of times Thoros had brought him back and expressed his increasing weariness with the process. When Thoros had gently told Aya that he did not have any magic that could bring Ned back to life, Beric was prompted to make Aya a promise. Though they needed her ransom badly, he also pledged that he would help her. I do not have the power to give you back your father, no more than Thoros does, but I can at least see that you are returned safely to your mother's arms.
0: Thinking of Joran, who had promised to see her safely to Winterfell, but had gotten killed instead, Arya had demanded an oath, and Beric complied. It says, On my honour as a knight, the Lightning Lord said solemnly. So there could be some setup or prefiguring of Stoneheart there. The wearied Lord Berwick may have seen passing the gift of life on to Lady Catelyn as a final act that would not only give him rest, but allow him to keep one last vow and go to that rest in peace, his knightly honor intact.
1: But, as we said, Arya's POV on the situation ended with Catlin's body on the riverbank, and so any reunion of mother and daughter, no matter its circumstances, must wait. Sandor took them into the foothills of the Mountains of the Moon, seeking to make their way to the Bloody Gate, and so get word to Liza Arin of the trade he wished to make. When they arrived at an isolated village, he sought to earn them some bread and wine and a roof over their heads by helping the villagers build a palisade around their homes. But the village elder killed Sandor's dream of a ransom from the Erie as dead as Aya's dream of rescuing her mother when he told them about the conditions on the high road beyond their village. There's frost above us and snow in the high passes. If you don't freeze or starve, the shadow cats will get you, or the cave bears. There's the clans as well. The burn men are fearless since Timit One Eye came back from the war, and half a year ago Gunthor son of Gern led the Stone Crows down on a village not eight miles from here. They took every woman and every scalp of grain and killed half the men. They have steel now, good swords and male halberks. And they watch the high road, the stone crows, the milk snakes, the sons of mist, all of them. Might be you'd take a few with you, but in the end they'd kill you and make off with your daughter.
0: Leaving aside the possible foreshadowing of one of the Mountain Clans kidnapping a Stark daughter who's masquerading as another man's daughter—that's a topic for another episode—we can see a bit of unmistakable foreshadowing of Arya's own arc in her silent reply to the villager. "'I'm not his daughter!' Arya might have shouted if she hadn't felt so tired." She was no one's daughter now. She was no one. Not Arya, not Weasel, not Nan, nor Ari, nor Squab, not even Lumpyhead. She was only some girl who ran with a dog by day and dreamed of wolves by night. In the very near future, Arya will become no one. A girl who runs with cats by day and dreams of wolves at night. For now, she was weary and sad and angry, and couldn't find it in her to tolerate the simple but well-meaning villagers who were plainly scared of the hound and of the outside world, and who tried to involve her in their day-to-day life.
1: One of those villagers was a girl of an age with Aya, who carried her simple cloth doll with her wherever she went, calling him Sir Soldier and bragging to Aya that he kept her safe. To the damaged and increasingly cynical Aya, the girl's company was intolerable, but the child persisted in following her around. Finally, unable to bear her presence any longer, Aya seized the doll from the girl. It says she ripped it open and pulled the rag stuffing out of its belly with a finger. Now he really looks like a soldier, she said, before she threw the doll in a brook.
0: Meanwhile, at the Erie, and according to our best estimate of the timeline, we have every reason to think this may be within a matter of days or weeks of Arya's experiences in the hills, Sansa is building a snow castle in the Godswood when her young cousin Robert Arryn comes along with a doll of his own and interferes. In a fit of pique relatively uncharacteristic of herself, Sansa attempts to get him to stop, as his game was destroying her snowy version of her home. It says, she grabbed for his hand, but she caught the doll instead. There was a loud ripping sound as the thin cloth tore. Suddenly, she had the doll's head, Robert had the legs and body, and the rag and sawdust stuffing was spilling in the snow. In the aftermath, it says, a mad rage seized hold of her. She picked up a broken branch and smashed the torn doll's head down on top of it, then pushed it down atop the shattered gatehouse of her snow castle.
1: In those scenes, both girls are acting out their rage and pain at the myriad losses and traumas they had experienced, and the parallel is both poignant and strong. Where it gets even more chilling is when one takes a closer look at the fates of the two dolls. Sir Soldier is tossed in a brook in a gruesome mirror of Catlin, and so many others tossed into the Green Fork, as witnessed by Aya from Nymeria's point of view, and Sweet Robin's doll head is mounted on a spike upon Sansa's castle wall, exactly as she had seen Ned's head back at the Red Keep.
0: Yeah, that is certainly very chilling. But back in the village, when the palisade was completed, the elder revealed that they had recognized Joffrey's dog after all, and made it clear that they must leave. Come winter, we'll be hard-pressed to feed our own, the man explained, and you, a man like you, brings blood with him. To Sandor's offer to help them protect themselves from marauding clansmen, the man replied, they say you lost your belly for fighting at the Blackwater. And so... They took payment for his work and left, with Arya wondering about his belly and whether that explained why he
1: had run from the twins. Arriving back in the Riverlands, they found the autumn storms had ceased and the floods had receded. With the way east blocked, Sandor decided that they would make for Riveron in the hopes that, quote, maybe the blackfish wants to buy himself a she-wolf. Aya though, was tired of that plan. It says she had been making for River Run for years, it seemed, without ever getting there. Every time she made for Riverrun, she ended up someplace worse. And so she tried to convince Sandor that her great-uncle wouldn't know her, and that there was another option, the wall. Thinking that John Snow would want her, even if no one else does, she told Sandor, My brother's on the wall, and when he objected with all the obstacles they would face in such a journey, a thousand leagues, frays, lizard lions, ironborn, and thousands of bloody buggering northmen, she tried to goad him by repeating the villagers' words, Are you scared of them? Have you lost your belly for fighting?
0: Sanders' response possibly hints at the reason he spent so much time sharpening the sword for which he had traded his war axe from the twins, and what might be the real reason he was reluctant to travel so far afield. There's nothing wrong with my belly, and I don't give a rat's ass for you or your brother. I have a brother, too. Gregor Clegane was last known to be in the Riverlands, wreaking havoc in the name of his liege lord, and Sandor, as has been hinted previously in the course of their travels, and will soon become manifestly obvious, had dreams of killing his brute of a brother. If his dreams of a ransom for Arya and even possibly a new chapter of service to House Stark were to be dashed, he wasn't ready to give up on that other goal. Going to the wall would take him in the opposite direction of his brother and into nearly as much danger as going into the twins would have done. And so it was decided they would make for Riverrun, which is exactly what Arya had been doing in her first chapter of A Storm of Swords all those months ago. Outside the inn, on a weathered gibbet, a woman's bones were twisting and rattling at every gust of wind. I know this inn. There hadn't been a gibbet outside the door when she had slept here with her sister Sansa
1: under the watchful eye of Septimordain, though. The route to Riverrun from the foothills of the Mountains of the Moon would have Aya and Sandor descend the high road to its junction with the King's Road and the River Road from where they could follow the River Road or, more likely, strike due west across country to avoid soldiers and broken men. But such a journey would also require crossing the Trident and the easiest place to do that was the vicinity of the Ruby Ford and that would bring the pair very close to the crossroads and its inn, which Aya hadn't seen since she stayed there with her family nearly 18 months previously.
0: And that occasion, as readers will no doubt recall, is when the events that led to Arya's bitter connection with Sandra Clegane were set in motion. Arya and Micah and Nymeria set out on an adventure from the safety of the inn, seeking rubies at the ruby ford, while Sansa and Joffrey had an outing of their own, which would also lead them near the ford, where their intersection would ultimately lead to the loss of both Nymeria and Sansa's lady, and Micah's murder by the hound. And so it's perhaps fitting that the climactic chapter of Sandor and Arya's intersection also begins at the inn.
1: Arriving at the inn, Arya was afraid of ghosts, though perhaps not the ghost of Masha Heddle, whose bones she observed somewhat dispassionately. Masha had been the innkeeper all those months ago when she had stayed there with her father and again when Catelyn and Tyrion intersected there some weeks later. It was Tyrion who, more than a year earlier, first saw the innkeep's body hanging from its gibbet, following the Battle of the Green Fork to the north, Rob Stark's victory over Jamie Lannister at Whispering Wood to the west, and Ned Stark's execution in King's Landing to the south. Now only her bones remained, and those had little power to frighten Aya by this time. But the ghosts of her memories, of her father, her sister, Septimordane, Lady, Micah, and more, were never far away, and she would have been reluctant to face them, not to mention nervous of being captured, once again, by the lions.
0: But Sandor apparently cared little whether he was recognised. He had been known at the Twins, by the Piper Archer, and again in the Hills— and likely had little chance of going unnoticed wherever he went due to his scarred face and notoriety. Unable to seek out the crossing at Lord Haraway's town after their previous venture with the ferry there, they would have to cross the Trident at the Ruby Ford or go far out of their way. Since his brother Gregor was the last known combatant to capture the Ford, Sander felt going into the inn for news and being forewarned if Gregor was still in the vicinity was worth the risk.
1: When Sandor strode into the inn, Aya was left to tend the horses. It was her best opportunity so far to leave, riding off on her own horse and possibly even taking Sandor's horse, Stranger, along too. Just a few weeks earlier, she would have left him to his fate and never looked back. But on this day, she chewed her lip and followed him into the inn. Given what followed over the next few days, it's hard to say why she didn't leave him in that moment. Perhaps she was resigned to making for River Run one more time, or perhaps some sixth sense told her to go into the building. And once inside, she realised two things instantly, that the occupants of the common room knew Sandor, but more significantly, that she knew two of them herself.
0: Back in Aria 3 at Stony Sept, when she first laid eyes on the mad huntsman's pack of ferocious dogs, she had made a wish. It says, I wish I had a good mean dog, said Arya wistfully, a lion-killing dog. It's well known both in story and to readers that the dog sigil of House Clegane was inspired by an event some half-century previously, when Sandor's grandfather, Kennelmaster to House Lannister, had saved Lord Tytos Lannister from a lioness, losing three of his dogs in the process, who were then immortalized as his house sigil. The Clegane legacy is literally based on lion-killing dogs. But in this context, of course, Arya was hoping for a dog that would help her achieve her goal of killing men in service to House Lannister. Lions in the sigil-based symbolic language of Westeros. And when she walked into the inn, she discovered two of the lions whose deaths she had prayed for most of all.
1: As far as we know, Aya hadn't recited her list of names in weeks. It seems likely that the deaths of her mother and brother had, temporarily at least, driven all other thoughts from her mind. But the last time she'd recited the list, it was full of the names of men who served Sir Gregor, Dunson, Poliver, Raff the Sweetling and the Tickler. Of course, her list also included the Hound himself, and Sir Illyn, Sir Marin, King Joffrey, and Queen Cersei in King's Landing. Ten names for ten targets, and three of them were in the room in front of her.
0: It was Poliver who spoke first, wondering if Sandor was looking for his brother. Sandor wanted wine and news, and he ignored Poliver, who in turn ignored Arya. As did the boy with him, a lad from House Sarsfield, and evidently one of Gregor Squire's. But the tickler, it says, gazed long and hard, perhaps trying to recall how he knew this child, or perhaps wondering what her relationship to Sandor was. By now the common room was empty, other than the five participants in the drama to come, and Polliver tried to change the subject by offering a bit of news. If you're looking for Sir, you come too late. He was at Hall but now he's not. Queen sent for him king joffrey's dead you know he added poisoned at his own wedding feast
1: Aya was momentarily lost contemplating joffrey's death it says she knew it ought to make her happy but somehow she still felt empty inside joffrey was dead but if rob was dead too what did it matter but polliver wasn't done with surprises his answer to sandor's query who killed him was to the point. The impits thought him and his little wife. Tyrion having a wife was again news to both Aya and Sandor and Poliver once more obliged with an explanation. I forgot you've been hiding under a rock. The northern girl, Winterfell's daughter, we heard she killed the king with a spell and afterward changed into a wolf with big leather wings like a bat and flew out a tower window. But she left the dwarf behind and Cersei means to have his head.
0: Talk about one surprise after another. Arya was confused by both her sister's marriage and the accusations against her, and dismayed by Sandor's reaction to this latest news. It says, his mouth twitched, but only the burned side. Cersei ought to dip the imp in wildfire and cook him, or tickle him till the moon turns black. He raised his wine cup and drained it straight away. Unaware of the protective nature of Sandor's connection with Sansa, Arya simply thinks he's being horrible thinking, he's just like they are. I should kill him when he sleeps. But Sandor was actually collecting information faster than Arya could process it. He pivoted to asking about Gregor and Harrenhal, and Polliver told him, one of the cooks opened a postern gate for us to get back at Hope for cutting off his foot.
1: Now that's interesting, because way back in A Clash of Kings, when convincing Gendry to help her escape Harrenhal, Arya had repeated a bit of gossip, assuring him it was truth. When Vargo hoats the lord, he's going to cut off the feet of all the servants to keep them from running away. The smiths too. Her lie was meant to scare her friend into leaving with her, and it worked. But apparently, was also not far from the truth, since one of the cooks who Hot Pie had worked with, evidently did end up losing a foot to Hote.
0: Arya was still processing this new information when Sandor asked his next question: "The Blackfish is still in River Run." Polliver's reply ended his dream of getting a ransom for Arya once and for all, not for long. He's under siege. Old Frey's gonna hang Edmure Tully unless he yields the castle. While Sandor poured more wine for himself and Arya, he was evidently lost in thought. His anger at Tyrion, whom he must have assumed had married Sansa forcibly, was now moderated by what appeared to be approval and perhaps happiness at Sansa's apparent escape. The little bird flew away, did she? Well, bloody good for her. She shit on the imp's head and flew off. Polliver and the Tickler were quick to assure him that Cersei would find Sansa while making comments about her appearance. Sandor agreed and added, clearly for Arya's benefit, and courteous, a proper little lady, not like her bloody sister. But that throwaway comment brought yet another surprising piece of news. They found her too, said Polliver. The sister! She's for Bolton's bastard, I hear.
1: Aya was confused by that, thinking Sansa had no other sister, but Sandor clearly understood what was afoot and laughed out loud. Then, having obviously decided on what their next move would be, with Riverrun besieged and no longer worth their effort, he asked about ships at Saltpans. The tickler, taking the question to mean that Sandor meant to flee Westeros, decided that the time for pleasant conversation was done, and got to the point. "'Would you put to sea without bidding farewell to your brother?' Sir, would sooner you return to Harrenhal with us, Sandor, I bet he would, or King's Landing.
0: Sandor's reply was both characteristic and predictable. Bugger that. Bugger him. Bugger you. And so what happened next was probably also predictable. It says... Everything seemed to happen at once then. Sandor lurched to his feet, Polliver drew his long sword, and the tickler's hand whipped around in a blur to send something silver flashing across the common room. If the hound had not been moving, the knife might have cored the apple of his throat. Instead, it only grazed his ribs and wound up quivering in the wall near the door.
1: Everyone was moving, Sandor parrying Polliver's long sword, the tickler standing with a short sword in one hand and a dagger in the other, even the squire drawing his own sword. Quick thinking Aya threw her wine cup at the squire and knocked him off his feet. Next she grabbed Sandor's abandoned cup and threw it at the tickler, but he dodged it, and other than giving Aya a look that was quote, cold with promise, he remained focused on the two-way assault of the hound. Arya realised that Sandor was drunk and with a desperation that was born as much from a fear of being captured by Gregor's men as anything else, she pulled out her dagger and threw it at the tickler.
0: It missed and as Arya grabbed the heavy stone wine flagon and prepared to throw that into the fray, she found herself grabbed from behind. She had forgotten the squire. But Aria was no stranger to this game. In a callback to killing the stable boy in King's Landing the day of her father's arrest, it says she jerked his knife from its sheath and sheathed it again in his belly, twisting. He wasn't wearing mail or even boiled leather, so it went right in the same way Needle had when she killed the stable boy. Escaping his grasp, she found the tickler's knife in the wall by the door and turned to observe the three-way sword fight in the corner of the room.
1: "'Poliver was trying to convince Sandor to surrender, "'while the tickler taunted him. "'Sandor was wounded and cornered, "'and yet when Poliver came at him with his long sword, "'Sandor drove forward and caught him in the face with his own sword. "'It says, the blade caught in the middle of Poliver's face, "'and when the hound wrenched it loose, half his head came with it. "'Now, with the odds evened, the tickler was suddenly wary.' He himself had only a short sword against Sandor's long sword, plus the reach of the much larger man would have vastly exceeded his own. Even gravely wounded, the hound was formidable and the tickler knew it. But as Aya had forgotten the squire, it seems the tickler had forgotten her. With all of his focus on Sandor, it says, it was the easiest thing in the world for Aya to step up behind him and stab him.
0: By this time, Arya was no stranger to killing men. From that stable boy, to the assault on the burning holdfast, to the Bolton Guard at Harrenhal, she had personally used Needle to kill several people, while she had used her agreement with Jack and Hagar to cause the deaths, directly and indirectly, of possibly dozens more. Her own personal kill list had been reduced to eight by this time, and her vicious stabbing of the tickler reduced it to seven. Notably, the tickler is the first person on her list that she personally killed, and her frenzied shouting and stabbing reveal just how traumatized she truly was after months of living with fear and tragedy.
1: When Sandor finally dragged her away, she stopped long enough to remind him that there was one more. The squire she had wounded with a knife thrust to the gut was on the floor, crying for mercy. Sandor looked at him and told Arya he was already dead. Stab wounds in the bowel would inevitably lead to an infection and death in a world without antibiotics. Though the boy was crying and begging for a maester, Sandor knew that the only way to end his suffering was to give him the mercy he was asking for. This one is yours, she-wolf. You do it.
0: When she had walked into the inn and recognized Poliver, Arya had noted that, quote, he wore three blades on his belt, a long sword on his left hip, and on his right, a dagger, and a slimmer blade, too long to be a dirk and too short to be a sword. Now she stepped over to Polivar's lifeless body and removed the slim blade, and when Sandor asked, you remember where the heart is? She nodded. And when the squire once again asked for mercy, It says, needle slipped between his ribs and gave it to him.
1: Fleeing from the inn, Sandor revealed his intention of heading to salt pans in search of a ship to take them to the Vale, and so the pair headed cross-country in a roughly southeasterly direction. When they made camp, Sandor directed her into tending his wounds, a deep gash in his leg, a shallower one on his neck, and another one on the burn side of his face where the remnants of his ear had been sliced off, with boiled wine and makeshift bandages made from the Sarsfield boy's cloak.
0: That night, falling asleep, Arya recited her list of names, leaving off Joffrey, Polliver and the Tickler. Sir Gregor the Mountain, Dunson... Raph the Sweetling, Sir Illyn, Sir Meryn, Queen Cersei. From its inception, her list had shrunk from twelve names to six, though only five people had died. Arya realized that she had left Sandor's name off the list, and wondered why. It says, She tried to think of Micah, but it was hard to remember what he looked like. She hadn't known him long. All he ever did was play at swords with me. The Hound she whispered, and Valar Morgulis. Maybe he'd be dead by morning.
1: As it happens, Sandor was not dead by morning, but it's worth exploring why he had been left off her list and what her inability to recall Micah's face might mean. At the end of our previous episode in this series, we commented how in A Storm of Swords, Aya had learned much about the greyness of the world, and that was at least in part due to her reacquaintance with Sandor Clegane. Now having not only failed to take advantage of Sandor's absence and then incapacity to escape, She was left wondering why, and perhaps the answer is that he was all she had left, the sole protector remaining in her life, and perhaps she might be wondering how his crimes stacked up against the myriad others she had witnessed, and how to square praying for his death with her fear of being alone, something she'd been struggling with throughout all of her chapters in A Storm of Swords.
0: That night... Arya dreamed she was Nymeria, chasing a riderless horse with her pack, but the hound woke her up before the kill. They rode for only a handful of hours though, before he had to stop, unable to sit his horse any longer. Arya brought him water and he fell into a feverish sleep while she observed his injuries. Some of his wounds still bled and the sword cut on his thigh smelled bad. Realizing that his life was in danger without assistance from a maester, she began to contemplate reaching Saltpans alone. And what would happen if she left him under the tree he had collapsed against? Giving voice internally to her reluctance to kill him, after all those months of praying for his death, she thought, I wouldn't have to kill him. If I just rode off and left him, he'd die all by himself. He'll die of fever and lie there beneath that tree till the end of days
1: but she also wondered if it might be better to kill him and tried to convince herself by thinking about Micah again. As she thought, she drew Needle and Sandor woke from his fevered sleep to ask, You remember where the heart is? He was asking her for mercy, but she froze instead and denied what she'd been thinking of. Months before, Sandor, describing the origin story of his house, had told her sister Sansa, A hound will die for you, but never lie to you. Now Aya's lion-killing dog restated his belief in absolute truth to her. Don't lie. I hate liars. I hate gutless frauds even worse. Go on, do it.
0: But Aya was conflicted, her cognitive dissonance temporarily preventing her from taking any action. A person suffers from cognitive dissonance when their behavior doesn't align with their beliefs. With Arya's long-standing belief that the Hound deserved death now in conflict with her unwillingness to kill him, she froze, a result of failing to either outwardly change her belief or her behavior. And so Sandor tried taunting her by reciting his crimes— I killed your butcher's boy. I cut him near in half and laughed about it after. And the little bird, your pretty sister. I stood there in my white cloak and let them beat her. I took the bloody song. She never gave it. I meant to take her too. I should have. I should have fucked her bloody and ripped her heart out before leaving her for that dwarf. Sander was sobbing now, racked by pain, perhaps cataloging some of the things he most regretted in his life. This harks back to the things he said to Arya after his trial in the Hollow Hill, an occasion when she had had absolute certainty that he deserved to die.
1: But when he asked again, it seemed she had reached a decision. You don't deserve the gift of mercy, she told him. On the surface, this could be her telling Sandor he isn't deserving of mercy because of the magnitude of his crimes, or it could be Arya simply refusing to decide. In the face of her cognitive dissonance, perhaps taking no action, which would clearly lead to a specific outcome anyway, seemed like the best choice. But there's also a third possibility that she, a Stark, had considered his crimes and made a decision, one that relieved her cognitive dissonance by changing her long-standing conviction that Sandor Clegane deserved death. Perhaps, with those words, Aya was saying that Sandor wasn't as guilty as she'd once thought and was not deserving of stark justice, swift judgment followed by a merciful death.
0: And so she left him with a parting shot. You shouldn't have hit me with an axe, she said. You should have saved my mother. In the end, those two things, one of which saved her life and the other of which was an impossibility, were all that she had left to accuse him of. By not taking action, she left the possibility of his survival open, her thoughts about wolves and what they might do to a wounded dog, notwithstanding. And so she rode away from her conflict, and it says, never looked back once.
1: Six days later, she arrived in Saltpans, and after selling a horse to a trader who didn't believe her story about how a scruffy child came by a well-bred horse, "'and so paid her far less than it was worth. "'She went to the docks to seek out the master "'of the purple galley that was moored there. "'She was seeking passage north to the wall "'and offered him all the silver "'she'd been given for the palfrey. "'The man refused her.' Not only did she not have enough silver, but he said, The north has nothing for us, ice and war and pirates. We saw a dozen pirate ships making north as we rounded Cracklaw Point, and I have no wish to meet them again. From here we bend our oars for home, and I suggest you do the same.
0: Aria, now bereft of home, pack, and horse, stopped the man long enough to ask him the name of his ship, and Where it was bound. His reply, This is the Gallius Titan's daughter of the free city of Bravos, suddenly reminded her of her final conversation with and Hagar. If the day comes when you would find me again, give that coin to any man from Bravos and say these words to him, Vala Mergulis. And so, pinning her final thread of hope on Jackin, the mysterious man who wasn't exactly her friend, but who might have helped her anyway. She did what he'd instructed.
1: The response from the captain, Valadohiris, of course you shall have a cabin. It's as electrifying to the reader as it must have been to Aya. The Guild of the Faceless Men had been mentioned only once in the series at this point, way back in a small council meeting in a Game of Thrones, though its existence has been hinted at in the person of Jack and Hagar and in the assassination of Balon Greyjoy. But Aya certainly knew nothing about them, and even less about the House of Black and White, their apparent headquarters in Bravos. And yet, that's where she would find herself when we next see her in A Feast for Crows. And so, up next, we'll trace the months she spends in Bravos as an apprentice to the secretive guild of assassins. But first, let's take a moment to thank our patrons from the Valyrian steel level.
0: Thanks so much to Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Oxheart, Blight Spirit, Archmeister Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Cabot the Unfrozen, David, Dean, James K., Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Casey, Lady Silverwing, Infanderas, the Unspeakable Terror, Maester Paul Capuano, Mark, Boss, Schwartz the Black, Noble Sir Matthew, Sword of the Early Moon, the Sithorian, Sally, Samantha, Tristus Lurian, Wild Child of the Wolf's Wood, Tim Magnar of Houston, W Sword of the Evening, and Lady Dialez of Nocky, the Alpha Patron. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp,
1: H E L P.
0: The star of home. For half a heartbeat, she let herself pretend that it was her home ahead. But that was stupid. Her home was gone, her parents dead and all her brothers slain, but Jon Snow on the wall. That was where she had wanted to go. She told the captain as much, but even the iron coin did not sway him. Arya never seemed to find the places she set out to reach. Yoren had sworn to deliver her to Winterfell, only she had ended up in Harrenhal and Yoren in his grave. When she escaped Harrenhal for Riverrun... Lem and Angai and Thomas Sevens took her captive and dragged her to the hollow hill instead. Then the Hound had stolen her and dragged her to the Twins. Arya had left him dying by the river and gone ahead to Saltpans, hoping to take passage for Eastwatch by the sea.
1: In the first passage of her first chapter in A Feast for Crows, Aya elaborated a cyclical pattern that had played her since A Game of Thrones, that of escape and capture. Unbeknownst to her, her sister Sansa, now in the Vale, had been undergoing a similar cycle of freedom and captivity. For her part, Aya seized the additional element of never reaching her destination. Near the end of a storm of swords, when the hound had decided to make for Riverrun, after it became clear they couldn't make the passage through the mountains of the moon, she had thought she had been making for Riverrun for years, it seemed, without ever getting there. Every time she made for Riverrun, she ended up someplace worse. After the fight at the Crossroads Inn, Sandor himself had changed his mind and decided they would head for Saltpans to look for a ship to take them to Goldtown in the Vale. Now that she had escaped Sandor Clegane and utilized the gift Jack and Hagar had given her, it seemed like she might finally be in charge of her own destiny.
0: The reality wasn't so simple, though captain of Titan's Daughter, may have been frightened by the connection to a secret organization implied by the Iron Coin, but his fear did not extend to going out of his way to deliver his passenger to Eastwatch, where she wanted to go. Once again, Arya would find herself somewhere she never meant to be. Though technically not captivity, it seemed that fate, and Titan's Daughter, would deliver her to the House of Black and White, whether she liked it or not.
1: And if fate was indeed directing Arya to Braavos via Titan's daughter, the author seems to have given us some early hints as to that destiny. In a Game of Thrones, on the run in King's Landing following her father's arrest, Arya had contemplated escaping by sea. Maybe that was the way out. Old Nan used to tell stories of boys who stowed away on trading galleys and sailed off into all kinds of adventures. Maybe Arya could do that too. Ultimately, that route would prove close to her, but later in a clash of kings at Harrenhal, she had contemplated escaping to Winterfell to see if her younger brothers were truly dead. If so, it says, then, quote, I'd just fly away, fly up past the moon and the shining stars and see all the things in Old Nan's stories, dragons and sea monsters and the titan of Bravos. And maybe I wouldn't ever fly back unless I wanted to. And as we said in the second instalment of this series, that seems like foreshadowing of several things, including going to Bravos.
0: Observing what the captain's youngest son called the Star of Home, which would eventually prove to be merely her first glimpse of the blazing eyes of the Titan of Bravos, marking the once secret entrance to the great lagoon that surrounded the Free City of Bravos, Arya thought about what she knew of the place. Her one-time mentor, Syrio Farrell, had once been first sword to the Sea Lord of Bravos, and both Maester Lewin and Old Nan had taught her about it. While Lewin's lessons were likely couched in dusty, forgettable history, Old Nan's stories had stayed with her. In particular, as they approached the Titan, Arya recalled what Old Nan had said about it. He was a giant as tall as a mountain, and whenever Bravo stood in danger, he would wake with fire in his eyes, his rocky limbs grinding and groaning as he waded out into the sea to smash the enemies. And, perhaps most significantly, the bravosi feed him on the juicy pink flesh of little high-born girls.
1: But old Nan's stories lack the power to frighten Aya now. For one thing, she spent a lot of time during the journey across the narrow sea thinking about how she was alone in the world. Lacking friends and family and a proper home, she remained defiant and determined to succeed on her own where so many others had failed her, thinking... I don't need any friends, so long as I have needle, and also Winterfell is burned and fallen. Old Nan and Maester Lewin were both dead, most like, and Sansa too. It did no good to think of them. All men must die. That was what the words meant, the words that Jack and Hagar had taught her when he gave her the worn iron coin. And finally, Bravos might not be so bad.
0: Certainly some of the sailors aboard Titan's Daughter had gone out of their way to give her gifts and ensure that she knew their names, though as we'll see, that had less to do with welcoming her than it did with their presumptions of who she was based on that iron coin that had so dramatically changed the captain's attitude towards her. Never inquiring as to her true identity, they bestowed the name Salty upon her, the latest in a long line of nicknames Arya had been given or had assumed as her true identity became subsumed in the chaotic circumstances of her young life.
1: Aya was reluctant to give any hint of her true identity. In fact, after so many months of hiding it, it would be surprising if she wasn't. And so, when the captain's youngest son, Denyo, as he described his native city to her, referred to your seven, she didn't protest aloud, though privately she thought, they are not my seven, they were my mother's gods, and they let the phrase murder her at the twins.' But she was unable to ask about the old gods, since that might mark her as a Northerner rather than the generic Westerosi. And anyway, what had the old gods done for her lately? She thinks the old gods are dead, with Mother and Father and Rob and Bran and Rickon all dead. And then she remembered Ned telling her that when the cold winds blow, the lone wolf dies and the pack survives. He was wrong, she thought. Aya had survived in spite of losing her pack and all those whom she had thought could fill the hole left by her family. It says the wolves of the pack had been taken and slain and skinned.
0: Daniel told her instead about the many-faced god and though she failed to grasp the implications of what that god represented, she wondered if this could at last be the god she was looking for, one who could answer her prayer. That prayer now stood at a list of six names, Sir Gregor, Dunson, Raph the Sweetling, Sir Ilan, Sir Marin, and Queen Cersei. Unbeknownst to her, but by this time very much known to people in Westeros, Gregor had apparently been killed by Oberyn Martell's poisoned spear. His resurrection as Sir Robert Strong notwithstanding, Arya's list was technically now down to five. She's permanently left the hound out of her prayers at this point, and while she thinks that she had left him dying on the banks of the trident, she does acknowledge that before that he had killed Polliver, as a good lion-killing dog should do. She's still conflicted over the manner of their parting, though, and wonders why she didn't
1: give him the gift of mercy. Once in Bravos, Salty was put ashore by another of the captain's sons. Like so many of the other sailors, he and his father both made sure she knew their names before they parted, and she was left at a windowless temple of dark grey stone. The journey to the temple had taken them through the winding canals of the city, showing her a vast network of buildings and waterways larger than any place she had ever been. Intimidated, she thought, I will be a mouse again, the way I was in Harrenhal before I ran away. But by the time Yorko Terrace, the captain's son, left her at the temple dock, her usual defiance had returned, and she rejected the mouse, remembering all the work she had done to reclaim her stark identity. It says... "'Suddenly she was somewhere else, back in Harrenhal with Gendry, maybe, "'or with the hound in the woods along the trident. "'Salty is a stupid child,' she told herself. "'I am a wolf and will not be afraid.' "'She patted Needle's hilt for luck and plunged into the shadows, "'taking the steps two at a time so no one could ever say she'd been afraid.' "'And so
0: Arya arrived at the House of Black and White,' demanding entrance from the weirwood and ebony doors by invoking Jackin's name and his coin, along with the phrase Valar Morgulis. Whether by magic or design, the doors opened to admit her to a world she would spend the next months trying to understand. Described as larger than a Westerosi sept, the temple's main feature, apart from its many altars to gods both familiar and foreign, was a black pool in its center, Here she encountered a young man weeping and touching the surface of the water. Thinking he must be thirsty, she found an empty cup and filled it from the pool, handing it to him, only then noticing that he was bleeding from a stab wound to the belly. As with the squire back at the crossroads, the youth's death was likely certain, and what remained was only to determine the manner of it. Unbeknownst to herself, Arya delivered the youth the gift of mercy by handing him a drink of the black water, and yet another echo of several scenes back in the Riverlands.
1: In speaking of the squire at the inn, as Arya looked around and realised that the many altars of the room were interspersed with alcoves in which the bodies of dead or dying folks reposed, someone touched her arm. It says like she spun away and then said, ''Don't grab me. I killed the boy who grabbed me last.'' This is another glimpse of Arya's moral code. The people on her list deserved death, for one reason or another, and the one time she decided she couldn't be sure, Sandor came off the list. But the squire, and even the stable boy in King's Landing, hadn't truly deserved death, and so their deaths had to be justified. "'I wouldn't have killed him if he hadn't grabbed me,' she had thought on board Titan's daughter." And here she tried to cover her fear with the threat that she might once again bring death upon someone who surprised her.
0: But the girl wasn't alone. With her was a hooded man who spoke Arya's language and replied to her question, What place is this? In a voice described as gentle, A place of peace. You are safe here. This is the house of black and white, my child. Though you are young to seek the favour of the many-faced god. Arya didn't understand what any of that meant and persisted with declaring her reason for coming there. I only came to find Jack and Hagar. Though the hooded man denied knowing Jackin, when she showed him the coin the Lorathi had given her, he asked Arya her name. He rejected her first several answers Salty, Squab, Nan, Weasel, Ari, though he did admit that the last one was close. Finally she gave him the truth he was asking for, Arya. She whispered the word the first time. The second time she threw it at him. I am Arya of House Stark.
1: Accepting that as truth, the man told her that Arya of House Stark had no place at the House of Black and White. When she pleaded that she had no other place to go, he asked her a question. Do you fear death? Biting her lip, a sign of indecision and deep thought, she answered, no. And then the man tested her, lowering his hood he revealed a horror, it says he had no face, only a yellowed skull with a few scraps of skin clinging to the cheeks, and a white worm wriggling from one empty eye socket. In a voice described as a death rattle, he asked her to kiss him, which almost seemed to amuse Arya. Unafraid, it says, Aya kissed him where his nose should be and plucked the grave worm from his eye to eat it, but it melted like a shadow in her hand.
0: Back in part two of this series, we noted how, fleeing from Harrenhal, Arya and her companions had come across an apple tree full of the bones of hanged men. Though Hotpie was frightened of the dead and prayed loudly, Arya had shown her lack of fear by saying her own prayer – Followed by the words, Valamorgulis, after which she touched Jackin's coin and then, quote, reached up and plucked an apple from among the dead men as she rode beneath them. It was mushy and overripe, but she ate it, worms and all. Having proved herself once more to be unafraid of death and of worms, the man's face changed into one she would come to know, quote, the kindliest old man she had ever seen, who declared, No one has ever tried to eat my worm before. Arya, of course, now had her feet on the path to becoming no one, courtesy of the House of Black and White, and when the kindly man asked if she was hungry, her internal reply proved that she had indeed understood much of what she'd observed in the temple so far. Yes, she thought, but not for food. Each Night Before Sleep she murmured her prayer into her pillow. Sir Gregor, it went. Dunson, Raff the Sweetling, Sir Illing, Sir Meryn, Queen Cersei. She would have whispered the names of the phrase of the Crossing, too, if she had known them. One day I'll know, she told herself, and then I'll kill them all.
1: Aya's second chapter in A Feast for Crows concerns her learning the ways of the organisation that was sheltering her. Though she was given the clothes and chores of a servant, those days were also the beginning of her education. The kindly man asked her every day who she was, and every time she replied no one, he identified the lie. Aya was trying to give him the answer he wanted as the price of her continued presence at the House of Black and White, but she knew that in her heart of hearts she was still Arya Stark, quote, the daughter of Lord Eddard Stark and Lady Catelyn, who had once had brothers named Rob and Bran and Rickon, a sister named Sansa, a direwolf called Nymeria, and a half-brother named Jon Snow. But she also knew that wasn't the answer that would get her what she wanted.
0: And what she wanted was still no more and no less than the deaths of the six people still on her list, plus all the Freys of the Crossing, whose names she didn't know, but whom she would vowed to kill. Early on, the kindly man asked her about the names she whispered in the night. Though she tried to deny and dissemble, his insistence seemed to her like a threat of dismissal, and so she told him the truth. They're people I hate. I want them to die. She was thinking of Jackin and his three wishes when the man asked if her goal was to learn the arts of the faceless men so that she could kill those people she hated. Not knowing the right answer, she tried to be non-committal with a maybe. And the man, a priest of the many-faced God, told her, Then you have come to the wrong place. It is not for you to say who shall live and who shall die. That gift belongs to him of many faces. We are but his servants sworn to do his will. After that, she prayed in silence and set herself to learning everything she could about the ways of the faceless men.
1: She observed the daily routine at the temple, the 30 gods who were represented there, and the roles and jobs assigned to all of its residents. She explored where she could and worked hard, as she once had at Harrenhal, though here she had a sleeping cell to herself and went to bed with a full belly every night. No one beat her or threatened her and she was free to ask questions about what she saw. She noticed the youngest acolyte was blind and that it fell to him to change the candles that had gone out. The kindly man hinted that this was part of some training ritual when he told her that the boy used his senses of smell and touch to tell when one of the candles had ceased to emit its evocative scent and heat into the air around it and urged her to shut her eyes and try it. The candles, the man told her, were meant to
0: soothe those who came to the temple seeking peace. He described the angel of death who accompanied every person throughout their lifetime, told her the visitors were looking for their dark angels, and asked what the burning candles smelt of to her. Arya's silent reply was proof of who she remained inside, in her secret heart. It says, Winterfell, she might have said, I smell snow and smoke and pine needles. I smell the stables. I smell Hodor laughing and John and Ra battling in the yard and Sansa singing about some stupid lady fair. I smell the crypts where the stone kings sit. I smell hot bread baking. I smell the godswood. I smell my wolf. I smell her fur almost as if she were still beside me. Aloud, she declared with characteristic defiance. I don't smell anything.
1: The kindly man was never fooled by her lies, and so he tried to explain what it meant for her to remain at the house of black and white. It was not, he told her, a place for orphans, and quote, All men must serve beneath this roof. Vala is how we say it here. Remain, if you will, but know that we shall require your obedience, at all times and in all things. If you cannot obey, you must depart. Not long after, her resolve was tested one night when the kindly man visited her sleeping cell, observing what she thought of as her treasures, the silver fork and floppy hat and fingerless gloves given her by the sailors on the Titan's Daughter, her dagger, boots and belt and small store of coins, the clothes she had been wearing and needle. He told her, you need to rid yourself of all this. All of those things belonged to Aya of House Stark, he said, and if she would stay with the faceless men, there was no place for them there. He told her, You must offer up all you are to him of many faces, your body, your soul, yourself. If you cannot bring yourself to do that, you must leave this place.
0: The kindly man went on to chronicle the things the many-faced god would ask of her, and asked if she was strong enough to bear the cost. He offered to send her back to Westeros, or find her place as an apprentice somewhere, or a husband, or whatever she desired. Aria, alone without her pack and filled with only the desire for vengeance, denied it all, and declared that she would pay whatever price was required of her, and to start, it appeared, She would have to dispose of
1: all the earthly possessions of Arya of House Stark. And so that night she slipped out of the temple with all of Arya Stark's belongings. The kindly man had made her realise that Arya of House Stark had no place at the House of Black and White, and so Arya would have to leave. One by one, Ayas' possessions were thrown into the canal by the girl who wanted nothing more than to be no one so she could take Aya Stark's vengeance. The gifts from the sailors, her Westerosi coins, the dagger she'd taken from the Piper Bowman in the Riverlands, her boots, belt and even her clothes, all went into the water and sank out of her life forever but at the last she could not throw away the one possession she had that still connected her to Winterfell. Needle stayed in her hand while she tried to convince herself it was just a sword, and to toss it away with the rest. But Needle wasn't just a sword. It stood for every part of her young life that had been lost, and she stood there, naked and shivering, remembering... Needle was Rob and Bran and Rickon, her mother and her father, even Sansa. Needle was Winterfell's grey walls and the laughter of its people. Needle was the summer snows, old Nan's stories, the heart tree with its red leaves and scary face, the warm, earthy smell of the glass gardens, the sound of the north wind rattling the shutters of her room. Needle was Jon Snow's smile."
0: Arya rationalized her refusal to part with her sword by remembering how it had come back to her. The gods wanted me to have it, not the seven, nor him of many faces, but her father's gods, the old gods of the north. The many-faced god can have the rest, she thought, but he can't have this. And so she hid the sword beneath a loose stone on the steps leading to the temple, speaking aloud as she did so. You'll be safe here. No one will know where you are but me. And then, whispering, one day, as a final promise, she returned to her sleeping cell.
1: The next day, the kindly man told her the origin story of the faceless men. Aya, as a way of emphasising that she is still very much a child, is occasionally shown to be confused or lacking in the subtlety of a more experienced adult. Proving that her mind was still very much focused on vengeance, she failed to grasp the reasons why the first faceless man started by killing slaves rather than masters. The kindly man promised to tell her that story another day, implying that she must earn it by truly becoming no one. He could still see through her lie when she declared she was no one and to start she asked him to teach her how he could do such a thing.
0: It was the Waif who would teach her that and more, though to start they would learn each other's language so they could communicate. Arya from that day forward was a novice of the House of Black and White, and her days were spent learning bravosi, teaching the Waif the common tongue of Westeros, and playing the lying game, to learn to control her facial muscles and both disguise and identify untruths. She also served the priests of the Order as cupbearer, a skill she had learned at Harrenhal, and on those occasions she would let herself drift back to Westeros, where she dreamed she was, quote, a wolf running free through a moonlit forest with a great pack howling at her heels.
1: Remembering how Jack End had changed his face, Arya wondered if the priests she met were also capable of that trick. When she asked the kindly man to teach her that particular skill, one that we think is probably the holy grail of all the skills the faceless man could teach. He mocked her in his gentle way by telling her to puff up her cheeks and raise her eyebrows. But these are actually foundational skills which Aya seemed to understand, and so she began practising before a mirror. Rule your face and you can lie, she told herself, and soon she was rewarded for her hard work with a new responsibility, helping the acolytes to prepare the corpses found within the temple.
0: Weeks went by, in which it says Arya, quote, served, washed the dead, made faces at mirrors, learned the bravosi tongue, and tried to remember that she was no one. She never left the temple during that time, and then the kindly man decided that she had learned enough bravosi to go live in the city among natives so that she might perfect her grasp of the language. This time, when the kindly man asked her name, no one was not the answer he wanted. Nor was Salty, and so Arya took a new name, one that tied her more firmly to her true identity than any other she had taken since Ari, Cat. Like her sister going by the name Elaine in the Vale, Arya's new name led directly back to her mother, while another part of her cover story, that she had arrived in Braavos from King's Landing on a ship called Nymeria, linked her directly to the wolf who still lived in her dreams at night.
1: And so Cat was sent to work for a fishmonger called Brosco to sell his wares on the docks and to learn what she could about the language and culture of her new home. She was happy as she tasted freedom once more and she chanted her list of names aloud for the first time in weeks. Aya Stark was on her way to seizing the one thing she cared about from the world, not by carefully obeying the kindly man's instructions, but by doing things on her own terms once more, and she was delighted about it. As she made her way across the city, it says, Aya turned her face up to let the raindrops wash her cheeks, so happy she could dance vala mogulis," she said, vala mogulis, vala Morgulis.
0: only had three kinds of weather. Fog was bad, rain was worse, and freezing rain was worst. But every so often would come a morning when the dawn broke pink and blue and the air was sharp and salty. Those were the days that Cat loved
1: best. Cat of the Canals is Aya's third chapter in *Bravos* and her final of A Feast for Crows. It describes her life living with the fishmonger Brusco and his family and her days roaming the city selling his wares. It quickly becomes obvious that Cat, like Arya Stark of Winterfell, has a gift for talking to and making friends with people from all walks of life. We also see in its opening pages that Cat is haunted by Arya Stark's dreams. In many she was a wolf and would wake with her senses full of the smells and sounds of her pack and the Westerosi forests. In others she was the little girl. Here's the description. She was always looking for her mother, stumbling through a wasted land of mud and blood and fire. It was always raining in that dream, and she could hear her mother screaming, but a monster with a dog's head would not let her go save her. In that dream, she was always weeping, like a frightened little girl.
0: As Cat, Arya enjoyed the work and the freedom of wheeling her barrow full of shellfish around the area of the city known as Ragman's Harbor. There she met sailors from many lands, including her native Westeros, as well as, quote, porters and mummers, rope makers and sailmenders, taverners, brewers and bakers and beggars and whores. She learned how to protect herself with a small knife, how to snatch a purse, how to curse in the trade tongue and to converse in bravosi. Mummers taught her speeches from their plays and she befriended all manner of street performers and was constantly shadowed by a collection of stray cats. In short, cat behaved more or less exactly as Arya Stark had always done.
1: The kindly man had instructed her to return to the temple each month at the new moon to serve and to report on the three new things she had been instructed to learn each month. Often it was new words or gossip, but occasionally it would be a secret or a bit of news from the outside world. She heard sailors' tales about dragons hatching, a pirate named San in the Stepstones, and once, from a crew out of Gull Town, of the death of Lady Liza Arryn, murdered by her own singer.
0: She also encountered two men of the Night's Watch, one of whom frequented alehouses and brothels, singing songs of love to the girls and generally drinking and carousing, all of which irritated Arya, who knew he was breaking his vows. The other was a fat boy, all in black, who she rescued from a pair of arrogant bravos on the night his companion participated in a mock marriage with one of the girls at a brothel called the Happy Port. Cat had told Sam where he could find Darion, and only later heard the story of how Sam hit Darion for breaking his vows and was subsequently tossed in a canal by the brothel's doorman
1: for disturbing the peace. The day Aya heard about Liza's death, she also found herself at the Happy Ports, peddling her oysters to the women and their patrons. Among those patrons was Darion, known as the Black Singer. Though Cat notes, quote, "'There was hardly any black about him now. "'With the coin his singing brought him, "'the crow had transformed himself into a peacock. "'Today he wore a plush purple cloak "'lined with ver, a striped white and lilac tunic, "'and the party-coloured breeches of a bravo, "'but he owned a silken cloak as well, "'and one made of burgundy velvet "'that was lined with cloth of gold.' The only black about him was his boots.
0: It was Arya Stark, not Cat of the Canals, who was angry about the singer. He is a man of the Night's Watch and should be on the wall, she thought. And when one of the women commented on his fair face, she thought, He's fair face and foul of heart. But she kept the sentiment to herself. After his songs were over and all of Cat's oysters sold, the two departed the happy port together as the sun was setting. Kat asked Darion about his fat brother and whether he had ever found a ship. Darion didn't answer her question directly, likely because he didn't know the answer, but he mentioned that Lord Snow had commanded them all to take ship to Oldtown. Unfortunately for him, he dismissed his own personal violation of his Lord Commander's orders with a proverbial shrug. Well, it's too late now.
1: We say unfortunate because Kat's response just so probably should have raised a red flag with the singer. It was too late for Darion when he turned into a dark twisted alley with her. The next thing we know she was returning to Brosco after dark with a full purse and a pair of black boots. Giving both to her master, she reminded him that it was the dark of the moon and she would be off for her monthly praying, and then she returned to the house of black and white, where she changed her clothes and washed away all evidence of Cat of the Canals, becoming no one again.
0: Her lesson on poisons with the waif was interrupted by the kindly man who wanted to hear the three new things she had learned. While the first two were mainly gossip from the denizens of the docks in Ragman's Harbour, the third thing had a surprising effect on her apprenticeship. When pressed to give her third piece of information, she revealed, Darion is dead, the black singer who was sleeping at the happy port. He was really a deserter from the Night's Watch. Someone slit his throat and pushed him into a canal. But they kept his boots. And when the kindly man asked who could have done such a thing... She replied with unexpected honesty. Arya of House
1: Stark The kindly man's reaction to that was wholly unexpected. It says he asked the way for a drink. My throat is dry. Do me a kindness and bring a cup of wine for me and warm milk for our friend Arya, who has returned to us so unexpectedly. Aya, it turns out, had wondered about the response she would receive to her confession and had been prepared for anything from anger to approval. But warm milk took her by surprise. Nonetheless, she drank it down and then went to bed when the kindly man sent her off. That night she had a wolf dream, as she so often did. But this one was different. In the dream it says she had no pack, and she prowled alone, bounding over rooftops and padding silently beside the banks of a canal, stalking shadows through the fog. This is the first example of Arya, or
0: any of her siblings, skin-changing something that wasn't a wolf. Because the solitary creature roaming Bravos was certainly not a wolf which would have no place in the free city of Bravos, and was almost certainly a cat, and in fact may have been the very cat she had noticed earlier that day amongst the many who followed Cat of the Canals about her business, quote, a scrawny old tom with a chewed ear, who reminded her of a cat that she'd once chased all around the Red Keep. Keep an eye on that cat, cats in general, and cat dreams masquerading as wolf dreams, as they'll be significant when we dive into Arya's final two Point of View chapters.
1: This chapter, her final in the Feast for Crows, ends with a single sentence, another cliffhanger of sorts. When she woke the next morning, she was blind. We readers won't know until deep into A Dance with Dragons whether that blindness is natural or not, temporary or permanent, chastisement or abuse, or something else entirely. But there's one detail from A Feast for Crows that actually gives us a clue that perhaps, while many readers might initially view the blindness as a punishment, it was actually a natural progression to a new phase of her training.
0: Yeah, remember back in Aria 2 that she had noticed that the youngest acolyte in the temple was blind and that he was in charge of replacing burned-out candles in the temple. When she queried the kindly man about it, he had implied that there was some kind of training going on, and then, quote, he told Aria to close her eyes and try it for herself. And so even before we get to read what happens next, we have a significant hint that being blind was natural for acolytes at the House of Black and White. And whatever that implies about the kindly man's motivations in beginning that phase of her training immediately following Darion's death is something we'll discuss when we come back as we cover Arya's two chapters from A Dance with Dragons. Her nights were lit by distant stars and the shimmer of moonlight on snow, but every dawn she
1: woke to darkness. Aya's first chapter in A Dance with Dragons opens with a description of a wolf dream. In her dream, she and her pack killed and devoured a shepherd, along with his dogs and flock, in the Riverlands. It was snowing, which allows us to sync this chapter roughly with Jamie's A Feast for Crows chapters, and the event marks a departure from several months previously where Aya had been reluctant to eat man flesh while wearing Nymeria's skin. Now Aya, like her brother Bran in the haunted forest beyond the wall, crosses a line that she was likely unaware existed. The reader knows, though. In the prologue to A Dance with Dragons, George laid out some of the rules of skin-changing via the POV of Varamir Sixkins, skin-changer of the Free Folk. Among them, to eat of human meat was abomination.
0: And before we get too far into A Dance with Dragons, we see first Bran and then Arya break that taboo. Meat was meat and men were prey, Arya thinks. Far away in Westeros, her sleeping brother was uneasy while, quote, the dire wolf did not care. They were meat. He was hungry. And so we see that without mentoring, two of our Stark wargs failed to control their wolf, giving in to their instinctive prey drive in the face of hunger. Arya is once again shown to be literally feeding her secret stark identity as she sleeps. She is the night wolf, and she isn't sorry, and she embraces it as we see in her thoughts in those first passages.
1: Yeah, waking from her dreams, she recites her morning prayer. Sir Gregor, Dunzon, Ralph the Sweetling, Sir Ilin, Sir Marin, Queen Circe. But when she thinks of her prayer, she corrects herself internally, not mine. I am no one. That is the night wolf's prayer. Someday she will find them, hunt them, smell their fear, taste their blood. Someday. Aya's long journey of assuming different identities in order to cloak and protect her secret true self has led her to this place where she is daily reminded who that true self is and then encouraged to deny it. As we might see with someone diagnosed with a dissociative disorder, her sense of self has become fragmented, with Aya Stark very much alive and well in both her deepest thoughts and inner dreams, while no one, a girl learning the ways and means of a secret order of assassins, comes to dominate her waking hours.
0: But those waking hours were now full of blindness, thanks to the milk potion she was fed every night to maintain that blindness. And we do learn in this chapter that the blindness is neither natural, nor was it strictly a punishment. It says, they would have taken her eyes from her anyway, to help her learn to use her other senses, but not for half a year. Blind acolytes were common in the House of Black and White, but few as young as she. The implication is that the kindly man had realized, after Darion's death, that Arya's training must progress swiftly, if at all, in order to prevent her using that training for her own purposes. At the same time, Arya's inner thoughts continue to cast doubt on whether that will be possible.
1: In terms of being blind, Arya Stark was not afraid of darkness – all the way back in A Game of Thrones, chasing cats beneath the Red Keep, she had remembered playing in the crypts of Winterfell with her siblings and reminded herself that the dark was not a terrifying thing. In fact, in A Clash of Kings, she recalls Syrio Forel telling her that, quote, darkness could be her friend. And if not being afraid of the dark was something of a theme in those earlier installments, in A Dance with Dragons, she positively embraces it. In a parallel chapter, her brother Bran, having finally found his mentor, is told, Never fear the darkness. The strongest trees are rooted in the dark places of the earth. Darkness will be your cloak, your shield, your mother's milk. Darkness will make you strong. And in Braavos, we see Arya using her imposed darkness in much the same way, as a learning tool, In particular, she is repeatedly told and reminds herself to rely on her other senses, which most people ignore in favour of their sight. Hear, smell, taste, feel. There are many ways to know the world for those who cannot see.
0: One aspect of her training that is only hinted at is the physical. Pulling her black and white stockings onto her legs, it says, Her legs were strong and springy and growing longer every day. She was glad of that. A water dancer needs good legs. Blind Beth was no water dancer, but she would not be Beth forever. This indicates early on that Arya knows her blindness is temporary, but it's also a reference to one of Arya Stark's fondest ambitions, to be a water dancer. Since water dancing was not the path of the Faceless Man, we should probably take this reference as another indication that Arya knows, deep down, that the House of Black and White will not be her home forever.
1: As for the name, I heard chosen Beth in honour of little Beth Cassell, though she acknowledges that it also pairs very well with Blind. Blind Beth was a beggar and much like Cat of the Canals, she was sent out into the city each day and tasked with bringing three new facts home to the kindly man. On the day the chapter opens, Arya supplies him with a bit of dockside gossip about Bravos. though she was tempted to tell him that it was snowing in Westeros in the Riverlands. But, it says, he would have asked her how she knew that, and she did not think he would like her answer.
0: And so we see that Arya has become more practiced than ever at hiding her inner thoughts, and though she still does chew her lip, She also spends a lot of time thinking about keeping her face still. She's nothing if not self-aware, and she's learning to lie so that even the most practiced master can't always tell. She was also learning to recognize lies herself, and something that she felt was a huge deception was the suggestion by the waif that the stick they had given her could be better than a pair of eyes. Arya disagreed, though she still kept the stick, and in fact, the cook had taken to calling her Stick, another name in the long list of names Arya had had. But Arya is starting to realize that names didn't matter. She thinks, she was her. No one. I am no one. Just a blind girl. Just a servant of him of many faces. Which might seem like Arya accepting the removal of her identity. But right there at the beginning, we see that she kept something for herself. She was her is perhaps best interpreted as Arya acknowledging that no matter what name or lack thereof she went by, she was still Arya, still herself.
1: As blind Beth, Arya would spend her mornings in the city with her begging bowl. Her lessons took place afterwards, first potions and poisons with the waif, then languages at supper. Aya was improving her bravosi and high Valerian, and also learning the tongues of Lys and Pentos. Evenings were for the lying game, which was much harder now that she was blind. Aya was learning to hear lies and to feel them in the waif's facial muscles, a skill which could be translated both to controlling her own face as well as to visual recognition once her sight was returned. She also continued many of the chores she had previously been assigned and was learning to find her way around the temple using sounds and smell and by counting steps and stairs.
0: One of her duties was to find new corpses near the pool in the temple and have them removed to the cellars where she would prepare the bodies by stripping and washing them. She worked in a chamber in the cellars and on this occasion, as she worked, the door opened behind her, and someone with a harsh, taunting voice proceeded to attack her with a stick, challenging her to fight back effectively, in spite of her disadvantage. She tried, but ended up tripped and on the floor, and angry. One day, she promised herself, she would beat her unknown assailant, but not until she could see him, and that day would not come soon. The waif had told her she could have her sight back for the asking, but Arya knew that on that day, they would send her away. In her typical stubborn way, she resolved not to yield. Her sight would be returned when the kindly man decided it was time, and not before.
1: As she worked in the temple, Aya would think about Cat of the Canals. She had enjoyed that part of her training, and had particularly enjoyed being Cat. But she acknowledged to herself that she had killed Cat when she killed Darion, Still, she wasn't sorry. It says, Darion had been a deserter from the Night's Watch. He had deserved to die. This is a foundational Stark sentiment. The very first chapter of A Game of Thrones dealt with Ned Stark and his entourage journeying to a holdfast near Winterfell to execute Gared, a Night's Watch deserter. In that chapter, Ned had told Bran about deserters, No man is more dangerous. The deserter knows his life is forfeit if he is taken, so he will not flinch from any crime, no matter how vile.
0: And he had continued by establishing the Stark ethos of personal responsibility. The blood of the First Men still flows in the veins of the Starks, and we hold to the belief that the man who passes the sentence should swing the sword. If you would take a man's life, you owe it to him to look into his eyes and hear his final words, and if you cannot bear to do that, then perhaps the man does not deserve to die. All of those points had come into play when Arya killed Darion. She knew his identity and his crime, and she had passed his sentence as it was her family's ancient right to do, and having done that, she did indeed look him in the eye and hear his final words. The fact that his final words affirmed that he had violated his lord commander's orders had sealed his fate.
1: But the kindly man and his order did not see the world in the same light. He told her, All men must die. We are but death's instruments, not death himself. When you slew the singer, you took God's powers on yourself. We kill men, but we do not presume to judge them. Do you understand... And though Aya said yes out loud, her silent reply, no, spoke volumes. The man knew she was lying and told her that her blindness would help her to see things their way. But perhaps she shouldn't have been so sure. Aya was an exceptional learner and during this period it becomes obvious that she is using her faceless men training to cloak her secret identity. Far from giving up Aya Stark, she was learning to hide her so deep that even her preternaturally observant mentors couldn't see her.
0: And speaking of not seeing, every night, blind Beth would venture out into the city with her begging bowl to take up a spot near a rotating selection of inns and taverns. On the day she found two bodies in the temple, a young man apparently from Westeros and an old Bravosi woman, she set out after dinner and found herself at a tavern called Pinto's in Ragman's Harbour, one of Cat of the Canal's favorite places. The owner was a man called Pinto who claimed to have once been one of the most fearsome pirates in the Stepstones, and who hid a kind heart beneath his unwashed clothes. Rather than make Beth sit outside like some innkeepers would do, Pinto would sometimes allow her to find a place indoors by the fire, and so it was on this night as Beth settled in to observe the clientele with her four senses.
1: Besides Pinto's regulars, Aya observed a number of other patrons, mostly by using her ears and occasionally her sense of smell, as in when she correctly identified a pair of Bravos by the scented oil they used in their hair, and some Ibanez whalers by the reek of blood and blubber, she also found herself joined by a stray cat, certainly one of the cats who used to follow Cat and her barrow of shellfish around, and possibly the very one she had dreamed of the night she lost her vision. And as she listened to a trio of licini sailors discussing their ship Goodheart and the reason she had been seized by the Sea Lord, it says, For a time it seemed that she could see them too, through the slitted yellow eyes of the Tomcat, in her lap.
0: The next morning the kindly man asked her, as he always did, to tell him three things she had learned. Arya was ready with her answer. The first two things, courtesy of those Licene sailors. Here's the passage. I know why the sea lord seized the good heart. She was carrying slaves, hundreds of slaves, women and children, roped together in her hold. I know where the slaves came from. They were wildlings from Westeros, from a place called Hardholm, an old ruined place, accursed. After the big battle where the king beyond the wall was killed, the wildlings ran away, and this woods witch said that if they went to Hardhome, ships would come and carry them away to someplace warm.
1: She goes on to offer the full explanation of Goodhart's capture and the implications for the free folk still at Hardhome. Added with her earlier interactions with Sam Tarly, and Darion and with the rumour she had been hearing about her brother Jon Snow, now known by some as the Black Bastard of the Wall, this information reveals some of the continuing story of the Night's Watch, things that were happening off-page from Jon's POV. There's a curious synchronicity between John's story and Arya's Bravos arc, which might lead one to suspect that one day the threads will merge, different roads leading to the same castle as it were.
0: But speaking of threads, let's not lose the thread of Arya's morning report to the kindly man. Having received his two new facts, he queries about the expected third, and she was ready with that as well. I know that you're the one who has been hitting me, and then it says, her stick flashed out and cracked against his fingers, sending his own stick clattering to the floor. When he had recovered, the kindly man asked how the blind girl could know such a thing, but Arya refused to answer, saying, I gave you three, I don't need to give you four. Her inner thoughts reveal her secret to the reader. Maybe on the morrow she would tell him about the cat that had followed her home last night from Pinto's, the cat that was hiding in the rafters, looking down on them. Or maybe not. If he could have
1: secrets, so could she. So here is the third example of Aya skin-changing a cat. The only stark skin-changer we've seen use an animal other than a wolf thus far— Though, of course, somewhere in the haunted forest, her brother Bran was breaking yet another of the skin-changing taboos by secretly wearing his servant Hodor's skin. But it's also one of the few overt examples we have of a skin-changer using their power to spy on other people, the other notable example being Orel and his eagle. And based on what happened next, we think it's evident that Aya's secret remained safely hidden from her mentors at the House of Black and White.
0: Yeah, that night at dinner, it says, she was given her usual drink, but when she gulped it down, it was immediately obvious that this was a different concoction and not her slightly bitter-tasting milk potion. Whatever the new drink was, it was made with hot peppers that set her tongue, nose and throat on fire. Using a common real-world fix for an overindulgence of capsaicin, eating dry bread, she tamed the flames and retired for the evening. But In the morning, something wholly unexpected happened. It says, And come the morning, when the night wolf left her and she opened her eyes, she saw a tallow candle burning where no candle had been the night before, its uncertain flame swaying back and forth like a whore at the happy port. She had never seen anything so beautiful.
1: This marks the second time that Aya, supposedly tasked with abandoning her Stark identity in favour of becoming no one, was advanced to the next stage of her faceless men training precisely by tapping into her Starkness. Not only that, but it's becoming increasingly clear that she is taking the skills she's learning at the House of Black and White and using them to not only protect her secret identity, but to convince her mentors into thinking she's operating in good faith as an acolyte of their order. And so, in our last section today, we'll cover Arya's final chapter of *A Dance with Dragons*, one that will bring her one monumental step closer towards realizing her goal at the House of Black and White—something she had dreamed of doing ever since she parted ways with Jack and Hagar in *A Clash of Kings*. Show me—I want to do it too. She had demanded of him on that long-ago day when he had changed from a handsome red-haired Lorathi to a hook-nosed man with a scar and curly black hair. And so up next, Arya gets a new face. Who are you? No one. Not so. You are Arya of House Stark, who bites a lip and cannot tell a lie.
0: I was. I'm not now.
1: Why are you here, liar? To serve,
0: to learn, to change my face.
1: Early in her time at the House of Black and White, Aya had asked the kindly man if he would teach her to do what she saw Jack and do—change his face so quickly and completely that he became a new person in a moment. A trick she assumed must be some type of magic. Will you show me how to change my face, she asked, and the kindly man responded by telling her to puff out her cheeks, a joke but also a lesson in learning to control her facial muscles. That lesson would progress to the lying game she played with a waif and is one of the skills Arya seems destined to master and use against her teachers.
0: But truly changing her face had eluded Arya so far. And in fact, the kindly man had not even acknowledged that what she observed Jackin do was something that would ever be taught to an acolyte of the House of Black and White, though it seems clear enough that it was a skill many of the priests she had come to know possessed. Her final published chapter begins with Arya once again serving as cupbearer for a gathering of priests in the temple. She had done this before, drawing on skills she learned from Serio, standing still— and at Harrenhal, when she was Nan, page to Roose Bolton. But this was the largest such gathering she had served. Eleven priests, it says, gathered for a meeting that lasted several hours, and ended with the kindly man asking Arya to stay behind to have words with a priest who wore the face of a plague victim, complete with oozing, bloody sores.
1: The interview began with Arya, seated in a chair made of Weirwood, being quizzed as to her identity. Though she declared she was no one, and that she desired only to serve and learn, Plagueface did not believe her, saying, "'You are Arya of House Stark, who bites her lip and cannot tell a lie.' He is referring to the tell that has followed her since a Game of Thrones and would be well known to any who had known her in all those years and months. And in fact, when he accuses her of killing for her own purposes and pleasure, something the faceless men were forbidden to do, she bit her lip, earning her a stinging slap on the face.
0: Knowing that she had failed at a part of her training she desperately wanted to master, she thanked him for the slap thinking that perhaps punishment might help her break that habit where her will had failed her identification of lip biting as something arya stark did quote not the night wolf is evidence that her dissociative identity was purely intentional arya is creating a new identity to overlay her true self plus all the other faces she had figuratively worn over the past months and years including no one the Wolf, unknown to her mentors, had the power to deceive them, utilizing her secret talents combined with the skills they were teaching her. Plagueface's next statement, though, hinted that he, at least, might know more about Arya's secret than she thought anyone did. Even as he accused her, you lie, I can see the truth in your eyes, you have the eyes of a wolf and a taste for blood. She silently recited the remaining six names on her list. Sir Gregor, Dunson, Rapha Sweetling, Sir Ilan, Sir Meryn, Queen Cersei.
1: Blakeface went on to refer to the time she spent with Brusco, you were a cat, they tell me. And that hits rather close to the bone, since, much more recently than she had been cat of the canals, she had indeed worn the skin of an actual cat. But rather than pursue a line of inquiry that might have revealed Aya's secret, Plagueface accused her of having a heart that was too soft to serve the many faced god. Not so, Aya declared. Repeating something aloud that she had been saying to herself since the aftermath of the Red Wedding, she said, I have no heart. I only have a hole. I've killed lots of people. I could kill you if I wanted.
0: Rather than react with alarm, Plagueface wanted to know if that would please her. He pounced on her hesitant answer, maybe, telling her that she had no place at the House of Black and White if she would kill to please herself, adding, "'We do not kill to serve some lord, to fatten our purses, to stroke our vanity. We never give the gift to please ourselves, nor do we choose the ones we kill. We are but servants of the God of Many Faces.'" Olivaria's protests and Plagueface's doubts led to him dictating the price of her remaining at the temple. The price is all you have and all you ever hope to have. We took your eyes and gave them back. Next we will take your ears and you will walk in silence. You will give us your legs and crawl. You will be no one's daughter, no one's wife, no one's mother. Your name will be a lie, and the very face you wear will not be
1: your own. The mention of gaining a new face seemed to motivate her. It says she nearly bit her lip, but caught herself in time, thinking, my face is a dark pool, hiding everything, showing nothing. And she also thought of all of her names, including Aya, and concluded that the names didn't matter. What mattered was what was inside her, and inside her was a girl who craved vengeance more than any future possibility. Recall that in her first chapter at the temple, she had thought that she was hungry, but not for food. And we see here that her hunger has not yet been sated. Nothing mattered to her more than the names on her list, which would include House Frey, if only she knew what to call them. And no price was too great for her in the quest to gain the skill she wanted. I can pay the price. Give me a face.
0: In order to earn a face, the priest told her, she must give a man a gift. The man would be a stranger to her, and the gift would be that of the many-faced god, death. The test seemed easy enough, prove that she could kill someone that she had no reason to kill. Fear and hatred could not be involved. And In order to help her plan the gift, she was told she would become cat of the canals again. Following that meeting, Plagueface seems to vanish from the house of black and white, and her task would be overseen by the kindly man. It was a task that, in the eyes of the faceless men, would prove once and for all that she could kill on their terms, without emotion or identity, rather than on her own, which were, to all intents and purposes, the exact opposite. To that end, she returned to Brusco the next day and resumed being cat of the canals, quote, as if she had never been away.
1: That very morning, she saw the man who was her target in the streets near the Purple Harbour, a location where Kat had rarely shouted her wares in the past, since she preferred Ragman's Harbour, where she could often speak the common tongue, to the exclusively Bravosi Purple Harbour. But Aya's Bravosi had improved over the months, and she was able to blend effortlessly into the crowded, cobbled streets of the district while observing her target.
0: Arya spent the next several days learning about the man and his habits. In the course of her observations, it's notable that she was continually looking for reasons to dislike or even hate him. It started with her observing that he was old and allowing her resentment that her own father had died young to color her opinion. He has lived too long, she thought. She watched his mannerisms and studied his appearance and decided he was mean, lacked courtesy, and that he had a villain's beard. But as she brought these opinions back to the House of Black and White and told the kindly man what she had learned, he told her that it was not for her to judge the man.
1: As her observations continued, she decided she loathed his hands, the constant movements of which conveyed his fears to her. And that led to her inquiring about his business. It turns out the man was an insurance broker selling guarantees of payouts to the families of shipowners and merchants should their ships and cargo be lost at sea. His death, she decided, had been paid for by someone who he had cheated, and that was enough for Aya, befriender and defender of the poor and the unfortunate, to decide she could kill him.
0: Of course, she had insisted all along to her mentors that she could do it, and would do it, so it's possible that, after the first day when the kindly man told her that her task was not to sit in judgment, they remained ignorant of the fact that she continued looking for reasons to find the man worthy of death. For what Stark could set out to execute a man if they had not, at least figuratively, looked him in the eye and heard his last words and decided his crimes were worthy of death? Aria was to be the insurance man's last judge whether her mentors wanted her to be or not.
1: From arriving at her decision, she set out to plan how it was to be done. It had been impressed upon her that she must not be seen and that she must not kill anyone besides her target. So careful planning was of the essence, and as we'll see, she ultimately settles upon a method that not only ties back to her long evenings helping the waif prepare her poisons, as indicated when it says the waif was there to help her, but that has been seen on page before, when the novice Pate died after biting a poison coin in Old Town but before she could carry out the deed, she would need a disguise, and this time it would not be a disguise achieved through costumes or mummers' tricks. Aya would at last get the thing she had been dreaming of since that long-ago day at Harrenhal. A new face.
0: In describing Arya's descent to the sanctum of the faceless men, a place previously forbidden to her, George takes his narrative into the territory of horror. She descends through darkness with her teachers and arrives in a chamber that is designed to frighten. Here's the passage. A thousand faces were gazing down on her. They hung upon the walls, before her and behind her, high and low, everywhere she looked, everywhere she turned. She saw old faces and young faces, pale faces and dark faces, smooth faces and wrinkled faces, freckled faces and scarred faces, handsome faces and homely faces, men and women, boys and girls, even babes, smiling faces, frowning faces, faces full of greed and rage and lust, bald faces and faces bristling with hair. Masks, she told herself, only masks, but even as she thought the thought, she knew it wasn't so. They
1: were skins. The kindly man offers her an exit, as he'd done many times in the past, telling her, It is not too late for you to leave us. Is this truly what you want? And then it says, I bit her lip. She did not know what she wanted. If I leave, where will I go?' She had washed and stripped a hundred corpses. Dead things did not frighten her. They carry them down here and slice their faces off. So what? She was the night wolf. No scraps of skin could frighten her. Leather hoods, that's all they are. They cannot hurt me. Her lip biting seems to go unnoticed by the kindly man this time, but her reluctance is obvious. We're reminded that she is still in her heart a lost child who is seeking a way to do the one thing that still has meaning to her, avenge her family's deaths. It's a tall order for a young girl, but in typical Aya fashion, she pushes her doubts away and plunges ahead, saying, Do it.
0: And so Arya was given the face of a brutally abused little girl who had come to the temple seeking her own death as an escape from her life of pain. Arya, ever the champion of justice, thinks that they should have killed the father instead. And the kindly man, as always, seems to read her mind and reminds her that's not how their order works. And then it says, he lifted up the lamp. We are done here. Arya's inner thought, for now reads as a promise of things to come and is almost as chilling as the final glimpse we get of the sanctum. As they made their way back up the steps, the empty eye holes of the skins upon the walls seemed to follow her. For a moment, she could almost see their lips moving, whispering dark, sweet secrets to one another in words too faint to hear.
1: The faces continued to haunt Aya through the night. Rather than dreaming of the night wolf, that night she lay awake, remembering the faces. Somehow she knew that, even without eyes, the faces could see her, and she began, almost as in a fever dream, to imagine the faces of people she once knew, but were now dead, hanging on her walls.' Her father and mother, her three brothers, Darion, the stable boy she had killed in King's Landing, the Bolton Guard at Harrenhal, the Sarsfield Squire from the Crossroads Inn, and the Tickler. As with Theon's dream of the dead at Winterfell, back in A Clash of Kings, she sees people she knows or believes to be dead. Missing are Sansa, said to have run away following Joffrey's murder, and Sandor, whom she left dying in the Riverlands. Perhaps we can conclude that Arya, deep down, holds out hope that both may have survived.
0: The dawn brought grey overcast skies and a brisk cold wind. A good day for a death, Arya thought, while silently repeating six names to herself. She made her way across the city that had become as familiar to her as any place in Westeros had been to Arya Stark, and found her target, where he always was, quote, ensconced inside the soup shop at his usual table, counting a purse of coins as he haggled with a ship's captain. His guards kept watch as usual, but that made no difference to Arya, whose plan evidently did not involve approaching the insurance broker directly.
1: Some time later, she made note of another man, a prosperous shipowner by the look of him, who often did business with her target. The man walked with a limp, and had a purse of gold on his right hip. Approaching him, Aya deployed one of her skills she had learned as cat of the canals, and slit his purse so she could reach inside it and fill her fist with coins.' A small tug made the man turn and notice her, and the ugly little girl, quote, kicked his bad leg out from under him, danced away and bolted as he fell, raining gold coins in her wake. Aya's mad dash across the city, outpacing and outsmarting her pursuers, was highly reminiscent of her escape from Tommen and Marcella's Lannister guards at the Red Keep early in the Game of Thrones.
0: When she was certain the pursuers had given up, she made her way back to the temple, thinking, by now the ship owner would have gathered up coins and cane and limped on to the soup shop. He might be drinking a bowl of hot broth and complaining to the old man about the ugly girl who had tried to rob his purse. And when she arrived at the House of Black and White, she handed the kindly man a single gold dragon, telling him, it wasn't stealing. I took one of his, but I left him one of ours. And while it says the kindly man understood the implications of that, so should we. Somewhere in Bravos, an insurance broker had bit down on a golden dragon of Westeros and, like the one-time novice of the Citadel, Pate, his heart would have given out as he collapsed in complete ignorance of the cause.
1: I had clearly done the job well as that night her own face was returned to her and she was given the robe of an acolyte of the House of Black and White signifying her promotion from novice based on her completing the milestone test. While she had outwardly accomplished the task to the specifications of her teachers, the reader knows that it was not a dispassionate killing of a stranger and that Aya had in fact passed judgement on the insurance man in deciding that his death had been requested by someone he had cheated. She did not, in fact, kill the man solely at the behest of the kindly man and plague face, but due to her own moral code.
0: As her A Dance with Dragons arc drew to a close, the kindly man offered a hint of what would come next for his pupil. On the morrow, you will go to Isimbaro to begin your first apprenticeship. Take what clothes you will from the vaults below. The city watch is looking for a certain ugly girl, known to frequent the purple harbor, so best you have a new face as well. And this time, when he asked her who she was, there would be no hint that he doubted her when she replied, no one.
1: Over the course of this series, we've followed Aya through tragedy and horror and along a path of learning that began with Sirio Farrell, continued with Jacken and Sandor Clegane and many others in the Riverlands and led her ultimately to the Kindly Man and the House of Black and White. Her identity has shifted, been obscured, reclaimed, denied and finally subsumed so deep inside herself that she appears to suffer from a sort of dissociative state. We've also observed her bond with the direwolf Nymeria which has protected, informed and influenced her in ways unique to Aya. None of her siblings all confirmed to be wargs or skin changers, have so far experienced a connection with their wolf at such a great distance as Aya has done in Bravos. not to mention the seeming ease with which she was able to consciously use a cat to spy on her teacher. In the end, only Bran may be as powerful a skin-changer as Arya, and given the way he seems to have been marked by the old gods themselves, that's saying quite a lot.
0: In her heart of hearts, Arya is still her, and we readers know that unbeknownst to her, four of her five siblings still live in Westeros, and we also know that, hidden behind a loose stone on the steps leading to the House of Black and White, Needle, the physical manifestation of her home and family that was returned to her by the old gods at the Crossroads Inn in Westeros lies hidden, waiting for her to reclaim it when she's ready to continue the undertaking of her quest to avenge the wrongs done to her family. One day soon, if we can refer to a spoiler from the unpublished Mercy chapter, the long thin blade bearing Micken's mark a blade that represented the truth about her deeply hidden and oft-denied identity, will be in her hand once more, and her prayer list will once again grow just a little bit shorter. Until then, we, like Arya, will also remember and wait patiently. Needle was Rob and Bran and Rickon, her mother and her father, even Sansa, Needle was Winterfell's gray walls and the laughter of its people. Needle was the summer snows, old Nan's stories, the heart tree with its red leaves and scary face, the warm earthy smell of the glass gardens, the sound of the north wind rattling the shutters of her room. Needle was Jon Snow's smile. hope you've enjoyed this conclusion to our series covering aria stark we'll be back soon with a new installment in our series covering the foundation of westeros as we dig into the andal invasion and now as always it's time to give credit where credit is due thanks to george rr R. martin for sending aria to bravos and thanks to kevin mcleod and kai Engel for allowing us to use their music in our production and as usual, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Castle Steel level. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron, and you could be hearing your name here too. Our sincere thanks to Atori Loon, AJ, Aegon the Sixth, Alex, Ally B, Ali C, Ashanat Yara, Oakenfist, Brand the Builder, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Sir Clint Theandle, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Courtney, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Lady Diana Dane, Esme, Liz, Emily of the Eerie, Evan, Ezra, Felix, Gerald Garcia, Sir Gladworth, Sir Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort, Ingveld, Isaac, Jim McGean, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Sonarion, the White Storm, Arafenway and Glorian, Julie Beth of Tarth, Judson, Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Kenneth, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of what? Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Lynn, Lomas, Night Rider, Survivor of the Yeen Sleepover, Nessie, the Questing Beast, Mage, Marmot, Monara Geek TV, Maria, Margareta, and our cohort of Mats: Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, Matt M, Matt R, as well as Beatrix Rainfall, Maester Mary, Molly, Nimble Nick, Oneiric, Patrick, Peter Pebble, Peter, P J, Paul B, Paul H. King Ray, first of his name, Richard, Sam, Sarah, Sir L'Arcelot of Bee Hill, Sir Swift, the peppered knight from the House of Black and Grey, Sheila, Cern, that shiny bastard, the Rat Chef de Cuisine, Terry, Sir Terence Knight of the Cedars, Valen Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Corn Halfhand, and Yvonne. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioEsteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal or Coffee, and comment on our content there. Or find us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And of course, you can connect with us via Facebook, Instagram, or email. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now.